Amen. Have a seat. Uh, good morning. Welcome again to church. Happy Mother's Day again to those of you who are moms. Um, and uh, if you would turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to be in verses 21 through 26. This morning is not, uh, if you're new with us, it's not an expressly Mother's Day message, uh, and that's just because of the way that I preach. I like to go through verse by verse through the scriptures. I know many of you are aware of that just from being here for a while, Um, so it may not feel like a Mother's Day message. It isn't, but we are so grateful for you on Mother's Day. um, As you're turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, Um, I want to highlight a fundraiser that we're doing, and maybe you guys remember this uh, from last year. We do this fundraiser called Change for Life. It's these baby bottles. You can grab one if you're interested in doing this on your way out there at the information desk. Um, But what this is, is it runs from Mother's Day to Father's Day, and the goal is to fill these bottles up with funds. Um, They're called Change for Life. It's Either your loose change or your dollar bills or even you are allowed to put checks in here as well um, or cryptocurrency or whatever. Um, But um, then you turn them back in here to the church um, by Father's Day and then the money will go to the Vermilion Right to Life organization. And just so you know, their stated mission is to defend life from conception to natural death. Um, And last year, the funds that we raised as a church through this fundraiser um, went to Zoe Care, which is in Yankton. It's a pregnancy um, center in Yankton, a crisis pregnancy center. Um, The funds also helped sponsor Yotes for Life and Students for Life here in Vermilion. It also helped to buy a toddler bed for um, a mom and a kid who were in need of a bed. Um, and then um, it's also the funding has gone to help get a satellite Zoe Care office uh, started here in Vermilion, which is major a major need. Um, and so I want to be clear <clears throat> that um, it's possible that you see this fundraiser if you're just visiting us or you haven't been here for a while or even if you're with us all the time, but then maybe you see this fundraiser. Um, as intentional based on the timing of what's happening in our culture and in our nation. Um, But I want to be really clear with us, all of us this morning, and I've been thinking a lot about this, and for whatever reason, it kind of makes me nervous. Um, The abortion issue, while it is highly politicized, it's not a political issue. It's a biblical one. And um, in my mind, and, and as this church, in our mind, it's something that we fight for. We fight for life in all ways, every single way, for moms, for babies, for refugees, for people who need help. Um, and we're about eternal life, but we're also about physical life right now. And so um, I know it's potential that you may feel judged in a place like this, and I don't want for that to happen. Um, I know that it's possible even in a room like this that people have been affected by abortion um, and I want you to know that God is gracious to you. God, God's grace that saved me is the same grace that all of us need. Um, but I'm also convinced that caring for the unborn is not a political issue at all. It's a biblical issue. Um, and, and that's why we do this fundraiser. And I, I, I want us also to be clear that it just, just so you're really clear on this, you are never going to get me to talk about politics from this stage, ever. <clears throat> and some people don't like that about me. Some people have even brought that up with me. It's 
not about politics at all. Um, we are about life, and those that are already born matter, and those that are not born yet really matter. And so the, this is a call to God's people to care for life, for human life. And so I would encourage you to grab one of these bottles. I would encourage you to fill it up. I would encourage all of us to make this a really um, just incredible fundraiser, one like we've never had before, um, because we want to care for moms. We want to care for babies. And so that's what we're doing here. I'm going to set this to the side. And that's what that's about. Now, hard shift. We're going to go to the scripture from today, and it's Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. And I would actually argue that Paul is talking about life, caring about life in this scripture. Um, we're in a sermon series entitled Unworldly for the World, and the goal of for us is to look at Jesus's call to his disciples in his kingdom. What does a disciple of Christ look like? What is Jesus calling his people to? Um, what does it look like to be unlike the world because we are Christ's followers for God's glory and for the benefit of the world that we live in? Jesus helps us to understand in his Sermon on the Mount that righteousness is something that happens by his grace. And then as we are made new, we are changed from the inside out. So radical, heart change righteousness, not self-righteousness, in our lives will make us unlike the world, but it will always be for the benefit of the world that we live in. God's kingdom people are different, and God is glorified, and we are most joyous when we live for him. So as we jump into our text today, it's important for us to remember that Jesus is addressing one main group when he is sharing this message. But there are multiple kinds of people around listening to what Jesus is saying. One group that he is talking to and the main group that he's talking to are the people that are called his disciples or his followers, people that are trusting in him and learning from him. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, the very beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount says this, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So we know that Jesus is addressing his disciples mainly when he's preaching. And this is important because we need to understand who he's talking to. Jesus isn't giving the people that are listening to him ways to earn their salvation. And I know I say this a lot, but your salvation, your eternal destiny, your faith in God is never based on your external actions. Jesus' followers were not his followers because they were able to do something. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and in Christ alone, not yourself. But when you and I, as Christ's disciples, when we give our lives to Christ, at that point, by the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus sits down with us as his disciples, and he calls us into something deeper. Into deeper obedience, into deeper joy, into kingdom life, Jesus calls his followers into a radical righteousness. He, he credits his righteousness to us, and then he calls us to obedience, and we are being made holy. And I know that I say that a ton, but it's so important when we study passages like this today, that it isn't your works that save you. The Sermon on the Mount isn't a works-based sermon. But the call of the Sermon on the Mount is to his disciples to a more radical, righteous life. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus, then today you might be asking the question, is this sermon even for me? And I would say, yes, it is. But the starting point is always the same. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. That's where you start. Nothing more, nothing less. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. And then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, who is God, you will be sanctified. So, the first thing we need to know is that Jesus is speaking to his followers in Matthew chapter 5. But then also, the second group of people that are hearing this message are this religious group called the Pharisees, the scribes and the Pharisees. And what they think is they think that Jesus is teaching a totally new law, right? But last week we saw that Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. Jesus says, don't be mistaken about my mission. I didn't come in any way to set the law and the prophets aside. And as some of you maybe have thought that I've come to set the law and the prophets aside, I didn't. Again, I think it's important for us to try to put ourselves where the people are in this setting. And Jesus says he didn't come to set the law and the prophets aside. In fact, he says, I'm getting behind the law and the prophets and your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. That's how we ended last week. And I want for us again to remember that this call had to have been astounding to the people that were listening. How can I be righteous enough? How can I be more righteous than who are considered the most righteous people on the earth? And the problem with these questions is, in Jesus' day, the scribes and the Pharisees had reduced obedience to God to a superficial matter of merely conforming to the outward letter of the law. And Jesus is here today teaching that true obedience means a deep, heartfelt, inward conformity to the actual intent of the law. And so now for the rest of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is going to illustrate what he means by righteousness. What he means by righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and how that should affect the lives of his followers, the people that are following him. And Jesus starts in verses 21 through 22 where he says this. In verse 21 it starts like this. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Let's pause there for a second. The scribes and the Pharisees at this point are saying something like this. I agree with that. I haven't murdered anyone. I am so righteous. My righteousness exceeds my own righteousness. They're so proud of themselves. They would say, how can you be better than me? I've never killed anyone. And then Jesus continues with verse 22, and he says this, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the, to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. And at this point, everyone that's listening to Jesus, the scribes and the Pharisees, but also his disciples are thinking, Whoa, whoa, what is happening here? Jesus says, well, you've heard it said that it was said to those of old. You've heard that, but I say to you. And before we dive in too deep into this passage, we need to notice two things. First, when we hear Jesus say, but I say to you, it could be easy for us to think that he's changing God's moral law to something different, right? But I want you to hear me clearly again and again and again, and I will probably say it again and again and again. Jesus is not 
ever pitting his teaching against the Old Testament law when he says, but I say to you. That's not what he's doing. We need to see that when Jesus said that you have heard it said to those of old, he's actually referring to the interpretation of the Jewish rabbis about God's sixth commandment, which is what this is. And God's sixth commandment says, you shall not commit murder. And Jesus is saying here that your teachers have interpreted the scriptures this way. But what I am telling you is that the heart of this law is the heart of God. And God means so much more than just don't kill people. The teachers were making the command of God about external behavior instead of what was in their hearts, being conformed to the heart of God, instead of being all about loving the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving their neighbor as themselves. What the Pharisees were doing is they were emphasizing that loving God meant external actions and ceremony. But they were not concerned with what drove their actions. And so Jesus says to these people, but I say to you, and it's more than just activity. The second thing that we need to know when we jump into all of these verses over the next few weeks here is when Jesus says, but I say to you, we have to be aware of how remarkable these five words are. Because what Jesus is doing here is he is asserting himself as the authority that is greater than any of the other ancient rabbis. Think about that. As the Son of God in human flesh, Jesus is emphasizing that he is the true interpreter of God's law. He is never changing the law ever. He is the fulfillment of the law and he is the ultimate interpreter of what the law means. And that's important. And with that, Jesus says this to his listeners. He says, murder is more than physically taking a person's life. Murder is more than physically taking a person's life. Again, Jesus isn't saying, but I say to you in an effort to contradict the sixth commandment. He is he isn't saying that the old teachers were wrong about the divine authority of this commandment. He, is, he also isn't introducing a totally new commandment. He still thinks it's wrong to murder somebody. Jesus is saying that his authority is to correct the interpretation that the ancient teachers had placed on the sixth commandment. They made it out to be only a matter of refraining from taking someone's physical life. But Jesus reveals that the commandment was always meant by God to prohibit anything we might do to take away from the personhood and dignity of another human being. We're, we're not to kill another human being by taking away his or her physical life, but neither are we to go and kill, I'll put that in quotes, the same person by assassinating his or her personhood. And that, according to Jesus, has been the real intent of the sixth commandment all along. Look again at the beginning of verse 22. It says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now we should stop here for a second and lay down another base point that this verse is not saying that anger in all forms is the same thing as murder or is as bad as murder. And just for the record, in case you guys are curious, I would rather that you be angry with me than you physically take my life. This verse is also not saying that anger is by itself 
sin. Jesus himself got angry when he cleared the temple, John chapter 2. He was angry with those who attacked him for healing on the Sabbath in Mark chapter 3. And in Matthew 23, Jesus called the Pharisees blind fools. So we have to conclude that anger by itself is not always sinful, right? Notice, though, that when we talk about Jesus being angry, his anger was always anger towards sin and anger towards injustice. Jesus never became angry at personal insult or disrespect. In fact, in 1 Peter 2, verse 23, it says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus exhibits what we would call righteous anger because he's angry at injustice and sin, not about personal assault. For us, anger is initially a response to something, right? Some, something happens to us and then anger is our natural emotion without ever having to think about it. I don't have to tell myself, okay, buddy, it's time to be angry here. Anger isn't something that I have to conjure up. And it, it, is, it is, sorry, so the question then, is it a sin to be angry? What is Jesus saying then when he says, everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment? What is he saying? Well, Jesus is definitely not trying to make all expressions of anger into automatic heart murder. What Jesus is actually saying is much more profound, and it requires us to just understand a little bit of the original language, just a tiny bit. The verb, as it's found in the original text, is a present passive participle. And i got to be honest with you, I hate it when pastors do this. But, because it's important... We have to understand that the correct translation would be this. Whoever is being provoked to anger in an ongoing, habitual way towards his brother is liable to judgment. In other words, Jesus was speaking of an ongoing habit of being angry towards a brother or an ongoing habit of holding a grudge. It's not whoever has been angry with his brother before, but... Whoever is angry with his brother and will not forgive or work, work it out or let it go. The sense here is this sense of a continual state of mind. Continual anger. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, the Apostle Paul says this, Be angry and do not sin. So he's quoting from Psalm chapter 4, verse 4, and he goes on to explain what it means to be angry without sinning. Here's what it means. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. In other words, we are not to hold on to our anger against someone continually, but we are to make sure that our anger is set aside before the sun sets and the day is over. We are not to go to bed in anger and wake up in the morning with our anger still red hot. Does anyone struggle with this? I do. And Jesus is saying, when you do not let go of your anger, when you let the sun go down while you still hold on to it, when you keep on being angry towards your brother and hold a grudge against him, you are sinning and you are guilty of murder. Unresolved anger, consistent, habitual anger is always sinful. 
And one of the main reasons that Jesus is pointing this out, and one of the main reasons that this is true, is because unresolved anger leads to sinful action. Jesus makes his point clear here in the second half of verse 22 when he says, Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What Jesus is saying is, is when you hold on to your anger, it leads to action. We insult and curse in our anger when things grow inside of us. The word insults in verse 22 is the Greek word raka, and it means to be empty-headed. I read a lot about this word this week, and it, the modern uh, commentators would suggest that words like numbskull, nitwit, blockhead, bonehead, jerk, or brainless idiot are good translations. But the idea here is that if you use the word raka in all seriousness, it demotes another person to the level of a nothing or a nobody. It is an utterly contemptuous word. And then the word fool is a translation from the Greek word moros, which is where we get our word moron. But it doesn't involve a person's IQ in the original language. It it, it simply means somebody's moral condition. And what Jesus is doing here is he is condemning angry contempt and all of its cousins, all of it. He isn't suggesting a, a ladder of offenses that results in progressively sterner judgments. He's not saying if you're mad, you get into a little bit of trouble, and then if you call someone an idiot, you get into a little bit more trouble, and then if you call someone a moron, you're going to hell. It's not a ladder of, of judgments. Jesus is simply showing us and his listeners that any animosity in our hearts for another human being, if we let that grow, it is deadly. Murder is sin. Anger in your heart that is undealt with is sin. And the wages of all sin is what? Death. God takes this so seriously. Why? Why does he care so much if I hold anger in my heart? Why does it matter so much? Because in our anger, we lose sight of a person that God loves. Jesus is saying here to his listeners and to us that we cannot think that we are safe just because we haven't shed any blood. That's how the world thinks. In God's kingdom, we are guilty enough to receive punishment if we have harbored anger and contempt in our hearts towards a person that God loves. He says, in essence, you may think that you are removed from anger morally, but you are wrong. If you have ever wished that someone was dead, or if you have ever thought that you thought that someone was worthless, then your heart has known murder. And in that view, Jesus is showing us something something all of us struggle with. He's showing us about ourselves again, and that is that we are all condemned by the law. We are all murderers. And these words from Jesus sound extreme. To some of his listeners, for sure, and my guess is that they sound extreme to you, too. And oftentimes, when we read words like this from the Bible, the temptation for us is to knock off the edges or to water it down. But I want to encourage you today, don't give in to that temptation. What Jesus is doing here is meant to shock our dull sensibilities. Jesus is being extreme because he wants to make it clear that the expectations and the standards of the kingdom of God are radical. 
The standards far exceed those of this fallen and evil world and the standards that humanity has set for us. And what Jesus is saying is God is not merely concerned about your external acts. He is concerned with the condition of your heart. Watch your heart. Guard your heart. The stakes are high. And then Jesus goes on in verses 23 through 26 to give two different illustrations. I'll share them really fast. Look first at verses 23 and 24. They say this. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So this first illustration that Jesus gives is of a worshiper who goes to the temple to give his offering to the Lord. It's a little bit different than our context because it's before Christ had died. So they're going to give a sacrificial offering to the Lord. He has his hands on the offering. He's in the middle of offering his gift to God. And then he's reminded of a genuine problem that needs attention. He has sinned against somebody else in this illustration. And Jesus says, if this is you... You should stop worshiping. Leave your gift in front of the altar and then be reconciled to your brother or to your sister. And then come back and offer your gift. Notice that Jesus puts the initiative on the one who has sinned against somebody else. In this scenario, the other person is probably the one that's angry, right? And Jesus says, if you are guilty, if you have genuinely hurt or wronged your brother or your sister, and they are angry, and you are aware of it, then take initiative to resolve the conflict with your brother. Seek them out. Apologize. Ask for their forgiveness. And his point is this, your ceremonies and your worship and your external acts that are not in concert with where your heart is, I don't want them. And I think that we're sometimes tempted to do this same exact thing. I know when I've wronged someone, sometimes I will just double down on my religiosity to make myself feel better. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said it this way. He said, I can, or I think I can say again that we all know something about this tendency not to face directly the conviction which the Holy Spirit produces in our hearts. But to say to ourselves, well, now I am doing this and that, and I am making great sacrifices at this point. I am being helpful in that matter. I am busily engaged in that piece of Christian work. The whole time we are not facing the jealousy we may feel against another Christian worker or something in our personal or private life. What we're doing is we are balancing one thing with another, thinking that this good over here will make up for this evil over here. And what Jesus is saying here is God is concerned with more than the external act of worship or act of giving. He is concerned with the heart of the person who worships. Unresolved conflict does affect our hearts. Unresolved conflict affects the hearts of the people that are around us. And because of that, it interferes with our ability to worship God. And then Jesus wraps up his message today with one last illustration from the legal realm. And he says this in verses 25 and 26. He says, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. 
Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penalty. And what Jesus is saying here is my advice is to do whatever you can to make amends and to do it quickly. If you don't, an inevitable process like the legal system will catch up to you. And you will have to pay the maximum penalty. What is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying that the longer that you wait to seek reconciliation, the more severe the consequences are likely to be. He says, keep things from escalating. Reconciliation is urgent. Will there be problems in relationships? Yes. Reconcile. Why? Because murder begins with unresolved anger in our hearts. Because actions come from what's happening inside of us. It is another remarkable message from Jesus. And he is saying that if we have his righteousness, if we are kingdom people, then we will not only refrain from shedding blood, but we will develop hearts that are liberated from the things that are the cause of murder. Namely, contemptuous anger. And here again we are probably all asking the same question. Okay, well, what do we do with this? Some of you maybe have a very practical thing the Holy Spirit is prompting you to do right now. But what is God calling us to this morning? What can I do today? Where is the hope inside of all of this? What's practical and where's the hope? Well, I have two different things for you. And the first is this, and this is our hope. We need to believe the gospel. We got to start there always. This section, once again, is Jesus in all of his grace, all of it, blowing up what is a street-level heresy that we all struggle with. Well, what do I mean by street-level heresy? I mean this. We all buy into this belief that sin is simply our outside behavior. We like to believe that sin in our lives is simply a matter of bad behavior. Why do we believe this? Well, I think we believe this because then we don't have to believe that sin in my life is some sort of dark defect in my character. I also want to believe this because I want to believe something is outside of me so that I can have more power over it. We also love to believe that our sin is caused more by what is outside of us than what is inside of us. And let me give you an example just to help you understand. I'll use my kids as the example right now because none of them are in here. And I'll do it in the second service too. But I have a similar conversation in my house, if not daily, at least a couple of times a week. And, and I've been having this conversation since they were born. It goes like this. Why did you take your sister's stuff or why did you hit your sister? Anybody ever have those kind of conversations? And as I racked my brain this week, and I'm not kidding, I tried to think of any opportunity I could to say that this wasn't true, but I cannot think of one time that any of my children have responded like this to me. I hit my sister because of the sin that's in my heart. Not one time. What they do, and honestly, it's funny because it's kids, but let me just make it really real for all of us. But what they do, if, but if we're completely honest, what we do consistently in situations like this is we always point to someone or something outside of ourselves as the cause of our behavior. 
And today, Jesus is confronting this kind of street-level heresy that we all accept that the reason that I sin is because of what somebody else did to me. And Jesus never once redefines the law of God. Jesus is saying this, God's law is meant to address and expose the heart because your sin is always a matter of the heart before it is an action of your body. It is hatred within my heart that causes me to use my members of my body to hurt somebody. And that is why I say to you, and that's why I say to me today, that we need to believe the gospel. We have to. Because what you and I both need this morning is Jesus' delivering grace from the sin that is in our hearts. We may be able to escape a lot of things outside of us, but we cannot escape the reality of our own hearts. And the gospel tells us this morning that God's great mercy and God's great grace will deliver us from what causes us to do things that we think are sin. It's what's inside of us. Once again, Jesus makes you and I aware that our only hope is Christ, who is the fulfillment of all of the law, and he offers his righteousness to us as a free gift right now. Jesus' radical demand here is meant to drive us to him for grace. In fact, his hard radical demand is so gracious because it causes us to say, Lord, I need you. Help me to honor you. Save me from my sin. Jesus' words push us to Jesus. Because he is our only hope today. So we got to believe the gospel that Jesus is the answer. The second thing I think this passage does for us is it serves as a diagnostic tool for our hearts. If you're a follower of Christ, if you've given your life to Christ, if you're a disciple, then Jesus gives you and I the law this morning as a tool to examine ourselves as believers. And, and I'm just going to lay out a series of different questions for all of us this morning to just to think about. That the law reveals heart anger, and so the question is this, what is the attitude of my heart this morning? If my attitude of my heart is hateful towards others, then it is an indication that there is something wrong. What about my mouth? In the midst of all of the pressures of relationship and in my frustration, do I speak words that destroy other people? If I do, then that tells me about the state of my heart. What is my attitude towards other people in my church? Am I concerned when I have sinned against others and that they may hold anger, anger and I might actually be affecting their worship? Do I initiate reconciliation rather than waiting for them to come to me? Am I so concerned for my brother and my sister's good that I desire to show the love of God in my heart by being reconciled to them or do I not care at all? If I don't, Jesus says that that tells us that there is an absence of the gospel love in my heart. And this message serves as a diagnostic tool that should drive us back to Christ so that we can put to death sin in our lives. I feel like just for a second here, and it's not in my notes, that I think it would be really important to say this, that if you have reached out to reconcile yourself to somebody and they didn't respond the way that you wanted them to, 
you've done what you can do. You've done everything it takes to live at peace with somebody else. You cannot dictate somebody else's reconciliation towards you. So some of you may be sitting here and thinking, I have a broken relationship, but I've tried to heal it. That's okay. You cannot dictate somebody else's heart. But these are questions for your heart this morning. Let me end this way this morning, and the worship team can come on up. Our attitude to Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 5 this morning is an index to our attitude to God. If you and I believe that God calls, God's call to righteousness is something that he put into our lives to ruin our lives, then that really tells us a lot of what we think about God. But if you and I can say with the psalmist this morning how I love your law, O God, and if we can be perfectly realistic and realize that we do not fulfill the law in this life, then we are on our way to both understanding the law of God and to understanding our God and to understanding the freedom that the Christian has. And this is huge, and I want us to hear this because the freedom given to a Christian is not freedom from obedience. It is freedom to obedience. It is not freedom against the laws of God. It is freedom for obedience. It frees us from the slavish fear of condemnation, and it frees us to the loving and willing obedience of children to the Father's instruction. And when that is true for us, we are going to be unworldly for the benefit of this world that we live in. When that is true for us, we are going to find so much joy being kingdom people. When that is true for us, we are going to be in such deep relationship with God and we are going to be so free. And that's what God calls us to when he says, let me be about your heart, not just your external actions. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word again. Lord, thank you for the high calling that you are way more concerned with our heart than you are with our actions, but that our actions will follow when our heart is changed. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that as we think about a lot of these questions, what is the condition of our heart? Lord, I pray like only you can do, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would convict us and that this church would be transformed into a forgiving people, into a people that worship you, into a people that are um, seen as kingdom people, and I pray that Vermilion would be changed because we're not like the world, but we are here for it. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.